0: Hey, uh, before we get going, I want to tell you about our sponsor this week, Casefleet. If you use facts in your job, and you could be a journalist, you could be a lawyer, anyone who has hundreds of dates, thousands of documents, and dozens of witnesses to wrangle knows that it's not an easy task. Casefleet's revolutionary chronology and document review software will help you organize your case or tell a story. You can sign up for a 14-day free trial at casefleet.com/longform. I'm going to pop up in the middle of the show and tell you more about it, but if you do sign up at casefleet.com/longform, you'll also get 10% off your first subscription. Here's the show.
1: Hello. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hello. Hey, Max. What have you got for us this week in terms of a guest? <laughs> in terms of a guest, I have for you Albert Samaha, who is a writer uh, and an editor at BuzzFeed. And Albert's had a pretty interesting career. He was in sort of the last throes of the alt-weekly era where young reporters could sort of cut their teeth and learn how to write big feature stories on someone else's dime. So he moved through all weeklies and then landed at BuzzFeed. And over that time, he did all kinds of different work, he wrote about sports. He wrote a book about a Pop Warner team in Brownsville, Brooklyn, but mostly he did sort of criminal justice investigative reporting. And then over the last year, he's uh, he's started to report on his own family. He did um, this incredible story for Pop Up which, Evan, you were in the audience for, Yes, right? one of the great all-time live storytelling experiences I've ever seen. Very short version is that his uncle was a massive rock star in the Philippines, and he left it all behind, moved to San Francisco. Uh, his uncle's name is Spanky. The story is about Uncle Spanky. You go find it on YouTube, or it's in the show notes. Uh, and then just recently, he did a story about his mother, who is a true, full-on QAnon believer. And he wrote about how she got to that place, but sort of more importantly, about how they have maintained their relationship while believing not just diametrically opposed versions of reality, but she really sees what Albert does as a huge part of the problem. And he's got a book coming out much later this year all about his family. So uh, he's been thinking a lot about how you report on yourself and your loved ones. And
0: uh, it was fun to talk to him about all of it. Excited to have him. I want to uh, send a big shout out to MailChimp. They're our sponsor this week. No, no fancy segues, uh, just our gratitude for making this show possible. Thanks to MailChimp. And now here's Max with Albert Samaha.
1: Albert, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for, uh, thanks for doing this.
2: Thanks for having me, Max. Honored to be here.
1: Uh, I'm excited, man. I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time. And then you wrote this piece about your mom a couple of weeks ago. And I was like, okay, now's the time. Like, I, I can wait no longer. I have to talk to this guy. <laughs> and, um, I was hoping that we could start with your childhood. Cause I did a little research. I did some background reporting on you, Albert. And you switched schools like a ton as a kid. How many different schools did you go to?
2: Uh, Good research, man. Um, I would say between first grade and high school, probably like seven or eight. That's a lot of schools. Yeah, there was one stretch from like third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade. Those five years were five different schools. That was like the peak of it.
1: And geographically, where were you during that time?
2: All around Northern California. So moving eastward from like San Francisco to San Mateo to Sacramento.
1: I moved schools once as a kid, and it was like... My experience of it was that it was like a pretty traumatic thing. And so when I read that that you had gone to seven or eight different schools, it just, I don't know, man, it seemed really hard and made me wonder if you have any sense of like how that led to the work that you're doing.
2: Oh man, that's such a great question because I think about that all the time. I mean, I'm sure we all sort of create mythologies from our own narrative. And I think the one that I've built from mine is that that experience sort of, Taught me two things. One, it taught me the ability to like dive into any social situation and just sort of have to survive and not feel uncomfortable or to sort of get used to what that discomfort feels like and figure out how to alleviate it. And two, it, it sort of helped me see early on just how many like interesting and cool people there are. Because I think, you know, we all have a tendency to, you know, we, we, we tribalize ourselves and like the classic example is like if me and a group of my boys are sitting at like a bar and we see across the room a group of like people that like look exactly like us and are probably our exact same age, you know, ostensibly they should be our closest friends, but instead we'll like talk shit about them. Yeah, like, oh man, like, look at those guys. they're Fuck not those cool. guys. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. And that's just sort of, you know, hardwired into our Darwinian brains because it's my tribe that needs to get the woolly mammoth meat as opposed to their tribe, Right. <laughs> But going to a bunch of different schools made me realize, like, oh, snap, like, these other kids at these other schools in a totally different city also are, like, cool or lame or whatever. But, like, it helped me see past this idea that the only interesting things were directly in front of me and taught me just how to be comfortable with just, like, going up to people and, like, asking them strange questions.
1: Did you feel a part of those places?
2: Yeah, I mean to varying degrees, you know. I, I think I did feel a part of those places because I had become so accustomed to those short stints. So to me, feeling a part of a place didn't take more than a few years because like by, you know, sixth grade I hadn't spent more than a year at any place for more than a couple of years. Um so I think I did. When I think back on those places, like my memory of each of those schools feels a lot more intimate than just like a year. Like none of those places feel like a passing experience in my life, but each felt like formidable in their own ways. And I feel like I learned different things at each of those schools. Um, I, I think a lot of that was just the age which it just happens when like everything from the ages of like 10 to 14 are just so like important, so many firsts. And to kind of experience all these different firsts at all these different places, I think grounded each of those places in like formidable events in my life.
1: That makes total sense to me. I mean, I feel like for all of us in one way or another, like age 10 to 14 looms pretty large, but help me understand the link between what you're talking about in terms of having to figure a place out and have some empathy and sort of like, uh, not necessarily just look at the people across the cafeteria and think, fuck those guys. Like, how does, how does that translate to the work that you do?
2: I think so much of the work I've done over the course of my career focuses on dropping into other people's experiences and understanding them in a way kind of beyond the cliche parachute journalist that we all try to avoid being. And I think I naturally come into those reporting situations aware of my own ignorance and knowing that the people I'm seeking to immerse with are doing me the favor. I'm not doing any favors necessarily by writing about them. They're doing me the favor by letting me write about them. And I think, like, those experiences at, like, those young age of dropping into an unfamiliar place and knowing that, like, I'm already an outcast and I have to, like, weave in. Well, how do I weave in? Well, I have to quickly understand what are the social norms of this place. How is it different? Like, I remember switching from fourth grade to fifth grade, went from a school where everybody loved to play basketball. And that was sort of my ticket to fourth grade success was being good (laughs) at basketball. That's how everyone became my friends. And everyone was really into, like, wrestling. And I was into wrestling, so that helped my social status, too. Going into fifth grade, everybody played soccer and I didn't play soccer. So I was like, oh no, you know, how do I make friends now? They're not as into basketball as I was, but they were into wrestling. So it's like, okay, well, this is going to be how I kind of form my identity. I'm going to show them that I could do the people's eyebrow, show them that I could roll my eyes in the back of my head like The Undertaker and sort of find where was the social currency where I could sort of wedge my way in. Mm -hmm. And I think that sort of stuck with me. And when I go on reporting trips, when I interview people, It's about finding what is that wedge? How do I wedge myself into this person's life quickly, right? How can I develop a sense of intimacy? I guess the comparison would be how do I develop the the, the sort of intimacy I would have to develop over the course of a year at this school I'm probably going to leave soon. How do I develop that sort of intimacy with a source I'm probably only going to have a couple of interviews with and and maybe only be in touch with for a few weeks, maybe a month at most? And, And I think the empathy aspect there is just about... You know, what is their life like and what are the aspects of their experience where I have common ground, where I can relate to, you know, as specific as like the sports team this person follows or as broad as like the fact that this person, you know, took vacation to like uh, the Grand Canyon once. And I went to the Grand Canyon once when I was in eighth grade and just kind of talking about that. Um, So identifying where those marks of common ground are. I think that's kind of the main skill I developed from those years
1: and the common ground has to be genuine. I mean it sounds like you weren't showing up at a school and being like I'm a totally new person in fifth grade. It's about looking for something that's actually true to yourself that you can see in the other person too.
2: So true, man. I learned early on that everyone has a really good bullshit detector. And like that's the thing I try to tell like especially like when I talk to like journalism students and stuff like that and people ask like what are your like interview tactics? And mine are like very different from a lot of my colleagues. Mine is very much like draw the bees with, like, honey instead of vinegar or, like, whatever the cliche is. Because, like, if I try to do the hard nose, like, pick up the phone, bulldog, like, hey, man, you got to give me this information, blah, blah, blah. Like, they're not going to buy that because that's not me, you know? But, like, if I come in it with, like, a smile and, like, the kind of a, a good spirit that reflects how I actually feel, um, people will know that's true. So that's the thing I try to tell people is that, like, so much of your reporting tactics has to reflect who you actually are as a person. Mm-hmm. Because, like, the only way to connect with people and to get them to like trust you is to like not try to deceive them and to kind of show them who you really are and hope that they'll reciprocate by showing who they really are. And the best way to like lose someone's trust early on is for them to think that you're putting on some kind of front or you're trying to like manipulate them emotionally in some ways. And I think what I try to do at least is to, uh, as you said, like just be myself and hope that by being myself, they'll see that everything else I'm telling them is also genuine and that they can trust me.
1: That makes total sense to me. I mean, I think about like, you know, you wrote a book about Pop Warner football in Brownsville, and I can totally understand how that approach makes sense and works in that context. But then you've also written these like very hard-nosed investigations of police departments and wrongful convictions, and you've had laws overturned through investigative reporting does that same idea hold in that kind of work in that investigative work is it are you still showing up and like just being like good time albert
2: all the more so man all the more so i actually think it's more important there than anywhere else because like it's hard to get the hardest sources to get are the ones that are like on the side that you're holding accountable right so like developing police sources was probably, like, the hardest, one of the hardest things I've had to do at my job, especially because, like, a lot of my police sources who would, like, Google my name will see a lot of stories that they would consider, like, anti-police, you know? And I think the police sources I have been able to talk to, the ones that have, you know, trusted me and and given me inside information on the departments, are the ones that I connected with on that exact same thing, the the exact same methods I would use to connect with someone that was, like, wrongfully convicted or whatever. And, And... it's a bit of a different dance in in, in those sort of stories because like my way of getting those sources was always kind of being, I wouldn't try to fool them about like what I was trying to do. Like I would say like, yeah, I am trying to hold your department accountable, but the hope would be that they care about that department being held accountable as well. You know, I, I would try to put myself in their shoes and think about, okay, if I get a call from like someone at the CJR asking me like, Hey, we're doing a big investigation on Buzzfeed. What are your thoughts? You know, I would like to think that if they had like, evidence of something BuzzFeed was doing bad and that should be rectified, that I would be on that side, that I would want those wrongs to be exposed and I would want to help rectify them. And so I try to approach those cops in the same way where it's like, I'm approaching you because I, re- I know you care about your department, and I know you want to do the right things, and I have this information, and we just really love to hear your thoughts about it. And, like, the truth is a lot of people are upset about the employers they have just across the board, right?
1: Everyone hates their fucking boss.
2: Yeah, everyone has complaints about their boss. Everyone thinks that there's a better way that their employer should be handling things, including cops, you know? But also cops are very skeptical of media because of, like, this perception of bias. or not being fair in covering police issues. And so I try to come at it as like, look, man, I hear where you're coming from. You know, here's the story I'm thinking of. Here's the problem that I'm trying to reveal. I'm curious what your thoughts are. And like, I mean, don't get me wrong, like 95% of the people I reach out to don't get back to me. So it's not like this is some like (laughs) magic trick, right? Like like, like in all of journalism, you only need that like 10% of people to get back to you. But to get that 10%, you need to reach out to 100 people to get 10 people. And you hope that like, I figure like when I make my first approach to sensitive sources, like you have to write that initial letter or email or whatever thinking like, OK, the type of person who would actually talk to me, what would they want to hear? As opposed to knowing that there are some people that are just not going to talk to me under any circumstances and there's nothing I can say to them. And so I sort of tailor my message that way.
1: Do you still write the people who you think will never talk to you?
2: Oh, yeah, you got to, you got to. Because when they do, you know, you can really get some gold there. And to kind of your earlier question about coming at it with a smiling face, so obviously there's the sources who give, like, background information, and then there's sources who are the actual people committing, like, the heinous acts that I'm writing about. Those are the ones where I feel it's all the more important to smile. That if you have, like, any chance to talk to them, at least for me, it's coming at them like, Hey, man, hope your day is going well. Yo, I'm working on a story. I think I might make you look kind of bad. You know, I got some evidence that you did this and that. Would love to get your side. I'm sure you have, like, a lot of thoughts. Happy to chat anytime. You know, like, kind of that kind of vibe. Because I think if you come, like, really strong on it, their initial thought is just going to be, like, what the fuck is this? Like, why are you coming so hard at me? You know, I haven't done anything. Like, for a first engagement, I want, I don't know, I want to create an atmosphere of, like, Let's just talk, man. Let's just talk. I'm not here to, like, nail you to the wall just yet. Maybe you have some valid opinions. I want to understand your perspective. And I think in order for them to understand that I'm just trying to understand their perspective, I need to actually show that I'm open-minded and that I haven't crucified them before hearing their perspective.
1: And is that true? Like, is anything that you just described, when you really look at it, does any of it feel disingenuous?
2: No. I mean, the part that's, like, murky is, like... Like, I have the evidence by the time I'm reaching out to them. And I know what they did is fucked up. You know, maybe they know what they did is fucked up. Maybe they don't. But when it comes to saying, I want to hear your side of it, I want to understand your mindset, that's 100% genuine. Like, I might not tell them everything I know about them, but I always find that a story is a lot more rich when you can get inside the head, when you can get the perspective of the people doing the bad thing. And sometimes in like pursuing those stories, it's easy to forget, especially if you really have strong evidence. You're like, well, the story is like this evidence and how fucked up this incident was. But if you can get the person who did the incident and explain what it is that led to that incident, I actually think it makes for a stronger story because I think a stronger story doesn't crucify the actor who committed the wrong. It crucifies the system that allowed the actor to do that wrong. That one story I think of in in particular was a story, it was actually a story at the Village Voice that got me hired at BuzzFeed. I did on this detective named Louis Scarsella, who ended up getting tied to like 50 wrongful convictions across Brooklyn and he would only talk to me on background or off the record but he would talk to me a lot, mm-hmm. and he was worried about how bad he was going to look. And He wanted to defend himself, and he really believed that he was being scapegoated when he was doing the same shit everybody else was doing. He just happened to be the one that like got caught from it. And so the information he provided, even though a lot of it didn't make it into the story in direct quotes, it was like really valuable background information on how, oh, actually, what I thought was a story about this exceptionally corrupt police officer is actually a story about how the system wants him to be the scapegoat because then it allows everyone to say, well, he's a rogue actor. He's a bad apple. But the better story is showing that, oh, actually, no, no, no. He's like one apple in a batch of apples.
1: What an incredible dynamic with that guy. I mean, I remember that story. He did some fucked up stuff and you had him dead to rights and yet still he was... Engaging on that level with you, that just seems like you're like holding so many things at once in those conversations with him, I imagine.
2: And you learn a lot based on how a source addresses what they're being accused of. And like he was speaking freely with me because my sense was that he truly didn't think he did anything wrong or egregious, truly believed that he was just doing his job to the best of his ability. And to me, that was more revealing than, like, any bit of evidence I had. And, and that was the sort of bit to me that stood out and kind of veered me away from the path of just writing a story about him and instead using him as a vehicle to explore the wider system. Because this was a guy that was like, I didn't do anything wrong, man. This is unfair. Why isn't anyone else, like, getting the heat that I'm getting? And, yeah, like, balancing that was, like, definitely tough, especially because, like, it's also, like, you know, how do I make sure I do this where I'm not just serving his interests, right? Because right. you, like, you always like the source that talks to you, right? And, and this is the thing, some reporters just say it outright, where it's like, you're going to look a lot better in the story if you talk to me. Because if you talk to me, I'm going to be able to have some perspectives that you have, and I won't be able to have that like, damning so-and-so did not you know, respond to comment. And how, I, I also want to like, navigate that. Like, I don't want to let him off the hook just because yeah. he's being a good source. I want to find a way to balance it. And, and you're right, it, it's like a lot of things to weigh but to me, the more things you have to weigh and the more complicated it is in my own mind, that's when I know I've got a story I'm really excited about. Because then it's like, okay, let's unpack these complications. That let's not like, try to avoid these complications, but let's lean into it. Let's, actually, like, let's not try to necessarily answer the questions I don't know how to answer, but let's just kind of pose these questions and use these questions as springboard to kind of explore what this issue is. <laughs>
0: Hey, uh, this is your co host, Aaron. I'm going to pause things here briefly to tell you about our sponsor this week, CaseFleet, who hooked me up with their software. I happened to be working on a project that it was perfect for. I had lots of documents stuck in my email that had all kinds of facts I needed for this project I was working on. I uploaded them to CaseFleet, and it does this auto-recognize thing where it extracts text and dates, so instantly you can start putting things on a chronological timeline. It has built-in text recognition and full-text search, so no longer was I hunting for documents. In fact, I was able to search within those documents. And probably the part I found the most impressive was how well it recognized different ways to write out a date from different documents uh i've never seen uh this kind of fuzzy search work so well i think Casefleet would be great for a lawyer but also great for someone uh writing nonfiction, making a podcast doing something uh deep in the archives with history it really can work for a variety of applications, and if you're intrigued, you can do a 14-day free trial at casefleet.com slash longform. You will get 10% off your first subscription. Thanks, Casefleet. Here's the show.
1: When you wrote that piece of The Village Voice, it was your third full-time job at an alt weekly. You'd been at the San Francisco Weekly, at the Riverfront Times, and then it landed at the Village Voice. And I, I have a real soft spot in my heart for all weeklies. I came up in all weeklies too. And I'm very I have a lot of like despair about the death of the Alt Weekly and because I I think it's a place to learn. And when you talk like that about sort of being excited and energized by the complexity of a story, there's another universe in which a young reporter is pretty daunted by that complexity where that feels overwhelming and that you actually are, want a simpler version and something that's a little bit more straightforward. You were still pretty young when you wrote that piece, right? Maybe like mid-20s?
2: Yeah, I think I was like 24, 25, yeah.
1: Were you able to sort of hit the ground running in terms of being able to like look for and accept and lean into that kind of complexity or is that something you had learned even though you'd only been reporting for a couple of years? Definitely
2: learned. And I mean, the beauty of all weeklies, as you know, is like, where else can a 22-year-old fresh out of J school get a job where your expectation is to write 10 long-form features a year? Like rigorously edited and like rigorously reported features, right? To the degree that it felt like too much. And like sometimes we wouldn't hit the 10 that we were officially expected to in our contract. I usually did more like eight a year. But I mean, by the time I wrote that story in August, you know, 2014, I already been in the you know all weekly game for like three, four years. So I, I was already like 30 features deep, and like those 30 features, like each of those experiences were like unique and rigorous and intensive, and taught me something else. So like what I was able to produce in that story was very much a product of the sum of the experience I'd gained writing 30, 35 feature stories over the last like three, four years under-editors who were really pushing for that sort of complexity and, like, counter So it was all very much, like, repetitions.
1: There's a thing you were saying earlier about showing up to reporting sort of aware of your own ignorance. I wonder if that's something that was growing for that time, too. Like, was your experience that the more reps you got, the more comfortable you got with how little you knew? Or were those not that related?
2: They're very related. I think when, when I first got into the game like refresh out of J school, I kind of came in with this arrogance of like, anything I want to write about will be important because I'm going to write it and I'm going to write it really well. So I remember I I came to a village voice editor once with an idea for a story on a wrongful conviction. And, you know, I had never written a wrongful conviction story before. And so it might as well have been that no one had ever written a wrongful conviction story (laughs) in the history of journalism. And my editor, you know, very smartly was like, what makes this different from every other fucking wrongful conviction story i've ever read and my answer was like well this one's also important because it's a different person and we can really help this person's life and you know coming with that very purely idealistic mindset which is good and which i you know i hope i never lose but i wasn't thinking much about like the reader and the audience i was thinking purely about me and my career and and my editor called it out he was like look man i know every reporter wants to write their wrongful conviction story but if we're going to greenlight this you need to show what makes it different and what makes it better than, like, the last one we published or whatever. And so that forced me to have to think about, okay, how can I reframe this? And I ended up reframing it around the daughter of the person and, Mm -hmm. like, through her perspective and kind of made it more of a narrative through that lens. But it spoke to, like, a larger point I had, which is that, like, as I wrote more stories, it kind of took the pressure off having to write stories. And I think that was sort of where my confidence and where my humility kind of counterintuitively, also began to bloom because at the start of my career, I felt like I was like, I just need to prove myself. I need to prove I can write a wrongful conviction story. I need to prove I can get someone out of prison. And by writing a bunch of stories, good and bad, I stopped having to feel like I constantly had to prove myself. Like every time I wrote a story, it was like one less story. I had to prove I had to write. And I think the older I got and the more mature I got... I began to realize, like, oh wait a minute, yeah, you know, Tom Finkel, my editor, was right. It's not about me and just checking off the boxes of the stories I needed to write. Like, how can these stories actually stand out within the entire ecosystem of journalism, not just in my own little like narrow mind? Mm -hmm. And that's sort of what expanded for me was like realizing that the longer I was in the game and the more repetitions I got, the more I was forced to really grapple with the wide scope of, like, journalism, right? Because, like, with each story, you know, whatever that topic was about – I would read as much as I could about that topic. You know, like for example, when I had to, I had to write this heist story about these guys that like went to a cash checking joint in Queens, they wore these masks that made them look like white guys, but mm-hmm. they were black. And like for a while, the cops were only looking for these like bald white guys, not knowing that these were like Hollywood style masks. And it was like a great, like, fun little uh, feature. And I read like I went to like the longform.org archive and I typed in like heist stories, and I want to read like all the Skip Hollinsworth heist stories, you know, from Texas Monthly. So I was very much trying to like be a student of the game. As I was growing, it's like, okay, if I'm going to write my first heist story, let me read like the masters and their heist stories. And that experience played just as big a role in helping me kind of lose that ignorance. Because now I'm seeing like, oh, wait a minute, like Skip Hollinsworth has done a bunch of great heist stories. If I want my stories to be anywhere near like as good as his, I need to know what's already been out there and what Mm -hmm. he's already done. And I think that's how I sort of opened my mind away from this kind of narrow-minded, arrogant ignorance that I'd started my career with.
1: When you think about the boxes you were trying to check at that point, what was your ambition then? Like, where did you want to get to? And has that changed for you now?
2: It has changed. Um, I mean, I am a child of, you know, the long-form magazine writing generation, right? Like, I went to journalism school dreaming to write for, like, GQ, Esquire, Harper's, The New Yorker, all that. And I came into the alt-weekly world where... That was the path. And they told you in journalism school, you go to all weeklies, put in some time there, and then maybe do some national freelance. And then from there, then you go to the national magazines, and then you get your like 30-year cushy staff <laughs> writing spot. And that was my plan. And I mean, my timing throughout much of my career has been very fortuitous. But one of those ways was I was like just young enough where as I was coming into alt weeklies the superstars of alt-weeklies who I really looked up to that were maybe like three to five years older than me at my papers, they were like leaving alt-weeklies for the national freelance experience and sort of crossing the bridge before it would be my turn to cross it. And so I had kind of a front row seat of seeing that bridge crumble beneath them and seeing these really talented writers who I really looked up to being unable to like make a living freelancing at least in the ways that they had intended. And so I quickly had to realize like, oh shit, like that's not as viable a path as like I believed it was coming out of journalism school.
1: Right, what they told me in J school is not uh, not actually true anymore.
2: Turned out, you know? And that's when I realized like, okay, this landscape is shifting fast. And that was sort of when I decided, oh, I'm just going to grip tightly at my little staff writing job as much as I can <laughs> and take things like one day, one year at a time. So I I didn't kind of embark on the national magazine freelancing experience the way I would have planned to coming out of journalism school. And so as I kind of reshaped my like plans in my head, it became, okay, I'm just going to be at Alt Weeklys for the next 20 years and I'm going to write books on the side. And the books are going to be the, the things that like makes me rich while the Alt Weekly stuff pays the bills type of mindset. And then... Midway through that plan in, like, 2014 is when, like, BuzzFeed emerges and starts to, like, really build out its newsroom. And, you know, BuzzFeed News did not exist when I graduated from journalism school. And so obviously it wasn't anywhere on my radar. And even at the time when they offered me the job, and this was another bit of good timing, because that story I mentioned about the police detective, that story published mid-August 2014, like, a week or two before Ferguson blew up. And when Ferguson happened, you know, BuzzFeed hired a national editor, Adam Serwer. His first task as national editor was to hire someone to cover criminal justice because that was the big issue of the day. And BuzzFeed didn't yet have the clout to hire, you know, the Times or the Post's criminal justice beat reporter. So they had to find local people who would be eager for the national platform. And so Adam read the Village Voice and found my story. And even when they offered me the job, for way more money than I was making at Village Voice, I remember thinking like, I don't know, man, I don't know. <laughs> and I remember, I even remember talking to my editor about it, and, we're, and he was even like, you know, if I was, you know, twenty five and didn't have kids, you know, I'd probably be willing to take a risk at a place like BuzzFeed too, you know. Little did I know that like six months after I started at BuzzFeed, the Village Voice had like a, another round, massive round of like layoffs and like right. print publication and all that. And but at the time, I mean, I'm kind of like mortified now looking back at how. How I almost misread the landscape, how I was always like, I don't know, going to BuzzFeed might really disrupt my plan to be at all weeklies for 20 years and write books and all that.
1: It's just amazing how quickly it turned. Like, it's so interesting to hear you talk about it, right? This choice to go to BuzzFeed felt really risky. And then it was a year, maybe a year and a half. And the voice was like a like a pamphlet, you know?
2: And I think the reason it kind of happened without me seeing it coming so much is that, like, that year and a half I was at voice man. I just remember, like, walking through New York, like, listening to Drake and looking at the skyline and just being like, oh, man, I've really made it. Like, this is, like, what I've dreamed of my whole life. I'm here. I Like, I felt like I was here. Um, And it was the first time in my career where I felt like I've made it. And to think that, like, two years after I had that experience, it was, you know, they're not even, they weren't, um, Printing print editions anymore um, was like a real like shock to the system of like holy shit I really dodged a bullet through no like you know prophecy of my own you know just through kind of sheer luck and chance like people always say things are humbling but it was like it was legitimately humbling and made me realize how precarious this whole industry and having a career in it can be even when you think everything's going right you're really like an inch away from everything going wrong.
1: Does it feel? like that to you now i mean you've written a book the book became a netflix series you've had all of these incredible stories at buzzfeed news you got another book coming out this year does it still feel precarious to you
2: i don't know if any child of the recession will ever not feel precarious and i think being in journalism makes that all the more so because, yeah, I think it, I still do feel precarious, you know? Like, I'm I'm glad I have my, you know, BuzzFeed salary to pay the bills and, like, all the book stuff and the Netflix stuff. Like, I'm much more financially secure than I was then. But, like, that's only, like, if I lose my job tomorrow, If but you know, then that savings is going to go dwindle real quick, you know? And I try never to forget that. I guess I don't want to never not feel precarious. At this point, I've sort of, like, embraced the precarity of working, in this industry, I'm sure at some point it's going to be like really grating for people to hear me talk about how like precarious and insecure I feel because it's like, yeah, man, you're fucking fine. There's a lot of people (laughs) that are in like much more like actual precarious situations when it comes to like making ends meet in this industry. But I got too many friends that are way too talented, not being able to use that talent in the ways that they're passionate about for me to ever feel that like my place in this industry is like fully cemented.
1: And how does that precarity interact with the work you do? Like, does it change the kind of choices you make, the the kind of stories you want to tell?
2: Definitely more urgency there. I, I try to approach every story like it could be the last one I write, the last time people are interested in paying me to put my words down. And so I try to make every, I mean, it, I'm sure I'm not the only one that says I try to make like every story my best, but I generally try to approach every story as like, this is the story to save my job or like, you know, this is a, like, I guess there's very much (laughs) like a what if. It sounds
1: like such an intense way to go through the world, man.
2: It probably is, man. I remember like, there's so many moments I can remember, like especially early at BuzzFeed where I'm like, I just need to wrap this story. It's going to be so good. It'll like secure me a place and I'll be like, I'll make it to a level where my like career will be secure. But then that would happen and then the next story would come and kind of you feel the same thing. And I don't know, like to me, it just, it, No matter how much, like, ostensible stability I might feel, the number of jobs in journalism always seems to be contracting, and there's always many more talented people available for those jobs than there are openings. And so I have just sort of trying to operate it with the urgency of, like, if tomorrow every journalism job disappeared, what's, like, the last thing I wrote that someone, if they were, like, filling out their, like, new expansion team journalism industry, what could get me, like, hired there? So I don't know if that's healthy or not. Like, it results in a lot of, like, hard grinding and hustling and late nights and, like, weekend work. But to me, it's like, I just feel so blessed to be able to, like, do this shit. And I don't—who knows how long, like, it lasts for any of us, like, in this industry. And so I just want to make the most of, like, every single story, every single opportunity, every single, like, door that opens. And to do the story now instead of, like, putting it off type of mindset.
1: It's like every story could be that Village Voice coverage story that got you noticed by BuzzFeed. Exactly. Exactly. There's an interesting thing that I've noticed that's happening with your work, and I wonder how this fits with this conversation we're having, because you've done all these different kinds of pieces, but for a while, you were doing heavy investigative reporting and a lot of stuff that led to really tangible outcomes. Laws changed, people exonerated, police chiefs resigning, then in the last... I don't know, 18 months, it feels like, you've really kind of turned and started looking at yourself and your family a lot more. And you've got a book coming out in October that it's about your family as well. And and I want to talk about that shift because I'm, I'm really interested in it. And the stories you've been doing about your family are incredible, and I want to spend some time on them. But I guess to start, like, does that seem as clear and as conscious to you as it looks from the outside? Is that something that you decided to focus on? And, and if so, why do you think you made that shift?
2: It is. And like, I'm trying to parse in my head now how that shift happened, where the chicken was, where the egg was, because I think there were a bunch of converging factors. So I think peripherally, I take pride in my ability to like parachute into an environment and like immerse and try to capture the voices of the people I'm like reporting on. And for like the first six, seven, eight years of my career, that was really like where my bread was buttered, was was telling other people's stories. And I think while reporting the first book, you know, immersing into this youth football community in Brownsville, Brooklyn, you know, it was great. And I and I loved reporting on that book. But I, I would always have this kind of like inkling prodding me in the back of my mind about like, you know, I'm 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 getting into all these people's lives. It's what how would I approach my life if I had to if I had to write about it. I mean, I think one of the impetuses for me to just start exploring my own family history more was when I turned the age my mom was when she came to the states from the Philippines. And like that was happening around the same time like Trump was happening and around the same time Duterte was elected president in the Philippines and at the same time like my like family was having like their own financial struggles. So I was having a lot of like Questions in my head about our own like place in America and our history, and the initial inkling to write about myself was when I was thinking about what I wanted my next book to be, and this was way back, right? Like uh, the book Concepción is coming out this October, twenty twenty one, but it initially was in my mind way back in like summer twenty sixteen, uh, before even my first book had come out, and it was just when I was just thinking about my family history that I was like, oh man, this is actually like kind of interesting, and if I was a reporter from the outside, I would be interested in this myself. And everything sort of stemmed from that initial book idea. Like I remember just talking to my agent about it and being like, you know, here's this next book idea. What do you think? And my agent, David Patterson, I love him. He's great. Like like a lot of great agents, one of his skills is like telling his reporters a hard truth in ways that won't cut us too deep. (laughs) And I was like, oh, yeah, I want to write this book about, like, my family's immigration story. And he was like, oh, well, you know, it would, it would really help us sell it if you've done any you know reporting in the Philippines or on the subject at all. And I was like, what? No, you know, I, I report on other people. What are you know? We can, why can't we just sell this book based on my current experience of immersing into other people's lives? And he was like, oh, yeah, sure, sure, whatever, you know, whatever you think, whatever. And then as soon as we got the phone, I'm like, fuck, he's right. I need <laughs> to, like, I need to have some, like, essay clips and some, like, experience reporting in the Philippines if I want to be taken seriously as someone writing essays about the Philippines.
1: But was it just that, like, those were boxes that needed to get checked? Or was there real background in your family's history, context that you didn't know? Both. Both.
2: The thing that ended up being really valuable for me in shifting that mindset toward, you know what? Instead of just starting on a book proposal on this, let me like do some reported stuff on this first. Ended up being really beneficial because like I ended up doing like three or four pieces. Like I did an essay about like the Philippines, elected Duterte and how my family supported him yeah. back in like 2017. And then I, I did Pop-Up Magazine where I, I did a story about my uncle who was like a rock star in the Philippines and then came to the U.S. to live like a blue collar baggage handler existence.
1: We, can we just stop? I, I want to hear about some more of the pieces, but we got to spend one second on Uncle Spanky because that story is amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Totally incredible story. Your uncle was like a huge rock star in the Philippines. One of the most famous people. It's it's a totally mind-boggling thing. Did you know that whole history?
2: I knew, and this goes to your question about the value of of this process. I knew it, you know, vaguely, right? But it's one of those things where it's like I assumed that my family was, like, exaggerating his celebrity. And it wasn't really something we talked about regularly. I just knew he was, like, a famous musician and he had some songs. But it wasn't until I sort of had this book project in mind that I began – asking him actual questions, you know, like, and then once I started asking him questions and asking my other relatives questions, that's when the idea really, like, took off in my mind and evolved from something that was just sort of like, oh, okay, my family's history and what does it mean to migrate to America to, like, specific theses about, like, you know, immigrant optimism crashing into American reality and, you know, what is the cost of the sacrifice and how do we make the sacrifice worth it? Those questions didn't emerge from like my initial brainstorming about this book project. They emerged from reporting out these other projects while thinking about the book stuff, from the Duterte essay to, yeah, the, the pop-up magazine, Uncle Spanky Story, to like a, another essay I did at BuzzFeed about my great-uncle who was um, an artist in, in Italy and, and created the sculpture for Nino Aquino after he was assassinated in Manila, to the most recent um, essay on my mom with QAnon, Like all of those essays kind of stemmed from the reporting process that I was doing at the same time for the book. But by having to write them individually as like standalone set pieces, working with editors and producers, and having to think of specific individual, you know, nut graphs and like theses for these bits of this bigger project I was working on really helped me evolve in my mind what the bigger project was about. And I think if I had just worked on the book without any of these shorter projects, I don't think I would have developed those ideas like anywhere near as much. And so it turned out that the benefit You know, as you suggested, wasn't just that I can go to some publisher saying, yeah, I have this experience reporting in the Philippines around my family. It was that I have these ideas that have been vetted with other editors. And and in my own mind, I had more confidence in them because I had already had to like present them to the world and get feedback from people. Um, And so that ended up being like a really fulfilling process to kind of report it in piecemeal while working on the book.
1: That makes a lot of sense to me in like a tactical journalistic way that you were sort of having to like check your work, refine your ideas, But, you know, I just read all of those pieces, watched you tell the story of your Uncle Spanky on YouTube. And my experience reading them in that way was that you must also be learning like a great deal about yourself. And it's not just like setting the book up to be more successful. Like it feels to me like from the outside, like, I don't know that you, that you must be trying to figure yourself out a little bit. Does that sound right to you?
2: hundred percent. And in fact, when I first conceived of the book, I was like very clear about like, oh, this is going to be like, I'm going to write this the same way I wrote my first book kind of, where I'm barely a character. My relatives are the character and like the narrative thrust will be through them. And in fact, one of the literary comps I had in mind was um, The Short and Tragic Life of Robert Peace, where the writer wrote about um, a friend he had from college who ends up like Fallen off later in life um, and like dying a, an early tragic death. And you don't meet the, the author as a character until the central character, Robert Peace, makes it to college and meets the author. And so my initial conception of the book was like, okay, you're not even gonna meet me as a character until like I'm born. Mm-hmm. You know, you're gonna get the, all this immigration story and then you're gonna meet me when I'm born. But you're right, exploring all these ideas and having to reflect on what it means for me and how i feel about myself and my place in the country and my relationship with my family i quickly realized like oh i'm kind of the thread i'm kind of the glue that holds all this together that i'm kind of the guide carrying the reader through this whole experience and and i think that process very much made the story not just in the book but also in, in the other writings i've done much more sharper and focused on like the narrative arc the journey here mm-hmm is not just in the migration, but in my own understanding as like a second-generation immigrant.
1: What have you figured out?
2: I have figured out that my migrating elders sort of taught me two conflicting lessons. One lesson was that America is the place to be, that we're willing to sacrifice this middle, upper-class existence in the Philippines because America holds these ideals unlike any empire before it. And if you are... Born into an age, all the better to be in the the empire of your age than out of it. Better to be colonist than colonized. So let's join. Let's be a part of this and let's make this country as good as we can. The other lesson was that if you don't like it, you could just bounce. And that there's always another place to go, right? like that. In some ways, that is the core of, of the immigrant story is to be courageous enough to leave all that you have built in your homeland in order to build elsewhere. And I think especially like this year or la- over the past year, that tension has been like central to my mind, this idea of are empires worth saving or worth fleeing from. And I think what I concluded is that they can be worth saving, that they are worth saving that you know, we could leave America to go to some other country that does not have the same amount of, of oppression or not have the same original sin, not have the same problematic mythology that blinds people to all the flaws of the country. But that country will have its own problems. And the empire of America will continue to exert its hegemony around the world. So perhaps the solution isn't to flee and to turn away from the problem, but to address it head on and to try to fix the country. And maybe the answer to making my elder sacrifice worthwhile is to help make the country live up to the ideals that they had, the ideals that carry them over the ocean. But I think also part of that thinking is... I mean, one of the challenges of ending the book was when you, you know, file your final manuscript, you sort of have to have your conclusion. But the process of working on the book for five years now made me realize that, like, every time I have a conclusion, I think of something else and then I have a new conclusion. Like, it's the same reason I'm, like, scared of getting a tattoo, Because it's like I have like a lot of sick ideas in my head right now, but I'm I'm worried that in like five or ten years I'm going to think those ideas are terrible and they're not going to like be cool in my eyes anymore. And it's kind of like that with like the conclusions I come to where it's like, okay, I I have my current conclusion of what my family story means to me that I will put towards the end of the book for readers to reach their own conclusion alongside with. But I'm also aware that in, like, five years, I might have a totally different perspective on that. And I might totally disagree with myself today. But you got to cap it at some point. And to me, the the only way to address that is to just be transparent about it and be like, okay, this is my conclusion now. Check back in, like, a year or two, and let's see if I still feel the same way.
1: Yeah, I mean, that that work you're describing, on some level, it's like uh, the work of your life, you know, to figure out who you are. And, like, it's quite appealing to have that nailed... Like, uh, you know, like however old you are 32 or whatever. Uh, but maybe the point is like, you never totally nail it, you know?
2: Yeah. Yeah. You never totally nail it. And I mean, that's the, the thing that's both scary and and exciting because like, if you nail it, then like, well, what, what do you do next? Like, I don't want to nail it. You know, I want to have something else to write about. I, I want my ideas to like expand and I want to like have more nooks and crannies of this to explore, I mean, I think it goes back to like what we talked about earlier about like that early kind of youthful arrogance of writing where everything you write has to be definitive. Now I've kind of come to the conclusion that nothing I write is definitive. Everything I write is ephemeral and like subject to reevaluation and like constant updates.
1: Yeah, that is very connected to getting more and more in touch with your own ignorance. Yeah, yeah. Well, good thing you figured it all out, man. This book's done. (laughs) I know right I know right I mean it really was
2: like I finished it the day before uh, election day because I was like terrified that like well shit man if we spiral into civil war I do not want this like deadline hanging over me
1: (laughs) (laughs) well I'm really looking forward to the book it'll be out in October I've I've really enjoyed these pieces you've been writing about your family and your family's history and you wrote one a couple weeks ago that just absolutely blew me away about your mom and your relationship with your mom and your mom's relationship with QAnon and Donald Trump. And I'm hoping we can spend a couple of minutes talking about that before we go. Can you give me the brief summary of that story for anyone who hasn't read it?
2: Yeah, it's basically about how how my mom is a passionate believer in, in the QAnon conspiracy theories and my efforts to try to pull her out of that Despite the fact that I am a member in her mind of like the liberal mainstream media. And so the tension in the story is sort of like my mom doesn't trust anything I say because I'm a member of the media that she finds not credible. And then I don't trust anything she says because her news sources are based from this like far right wing um, propaganda ecosystem. And so how do we move forward in our relationship when we sort of operate in two different realities. And sort of the main tension of the story is our efforts to persuade each other without covering any ground.
1: It feels like an incredible challenge. And you grew up living alone with your mother. You guys were incredibly tight. You still support her financially. Like, you know, all that time where you're moving around schools, like she was the constant in your life. And now there's this gulf I guess the question is just like, um, A, what was your experience and her experience of this piece coming out? And B, how optimistic are you that the two of you will be able to find a way through it? Her biggest
2: worry was that um, it would be really embarrassing for her friends to find out about my worldview. (laughs) And so that was the thing she was, like, holding on to. Her friends ended up liking the piece. um, Really? Because they were in similar situations themselves, right? So they saw themselves in our impasse as well. One thing that really helped, two things that really helped. One was that, like, because I've been working on this book, my mom and I have developed, like, the source-journalist relationship over the years. Like, I've been interviewing her, and we've been talking about our divide. So it wasn't like out of nowhere I sprung this essay idea on her. Like, it had been part of our the, the book reporting process of us talking about this stuff. So that helped. And the other thing that helped was that, unlike a lot of people I've spoken to who have similar situations with elderly relatives, my mom and I have been navigating these waters for, like, a decade now. You know, like, before, long before QAnon, we were arguing about, you know, whether Obama was Muslim. And, like, kind of the Fox News disinformation ecosystem pulled her um, into those beliefs before the, the QAnon stuff did. So by the time QAnon came around, we sort of had... We had a language and an intellectual framework to address this, and it didn't wholly consume us. It, it just felt like the world had shifted closer to her. It felt like, like she hadn't changed. Like our relationship wasn't changed by QAnon. Like the world changed and was more like her and was more like me. So it's like the world came to us. And I mean, optimism, I don't know. I mean, it's certainly less intense than it was like in the months before and after the election when. I was getting texts of, like, fake news stories every couple days. Um, Like, the ecosystem seems to have, like, slowed down a little bit. But the beliefs haven't, right? Like, the thing that I'm most terrified of is, like, even in, like, the early 2000s, even when we had disagreed about the Obama stuff, you could trace the disinformation to, like, Rush Limbaugh or Bill O'Reilly or Fox News. There were, like, specific figureheads that were guiding the ship that you could hold accountable and put blame on. Versus now, it's so decentralized, this, this information ecosystem. So it's like anyone can just sort of jump in and like take control of it and like commandeer this population of people who believe a lot of these falsities. So I, I don't know how optimistic I am. I think I'm neither optimistic or pessimistic. I think I'm sort of just resigned to the fact that this break from reality exists for a lot of people. And the question is just like how do we address it? How do we contain it from leading to any damage? And how do we sort of keep an eye out for what direction it goes in? Because there's, I mean, one of the things I'm grateful for with my mom's beliefs is that I do feel like it keeps me in touch with what's happening in the country more so than if she didn't believe that. You know, if she didn't believe the QAnon stuff or any of the other stuff she believes, I probably wouldn't pay as much attention to what large swaths of America believes, I'd probably dismiss it as just kind of fringe, harmless foolishness. But now being so close to it, it's different to me. It's personal. And I see firsthand, like before I see like a, a disinformation thread posted in like our news Slack, I get it in my, my text inbox like the <laughs> night before. I think it's good that so many people are engaged, right? That's kind of the fine line I try to walk with my mom is that I don't want to tell her to disconnect from like civic society. Like I like that she is interested in like what is happening in the world, and I like that she cares about writing the injustices she sees. And the question just becomes, how can you channel that towards things that are based in fact? Uh, that's the part I don't know about, and that's the part I don't know how optimistic I am about. But I think it's a good thing that she's civically engaged, and I think it's a good thing that a lot of people care about what happens to this country. I just want to defeat this disinformation ecosystem that's like casting such a toll
1: on the country. We started this conversation talking about empathy and being able to find common ground with people. Do you feel like you're able to do that with your mom?
2: Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, one of the things I wanted to capture in the piece, as bleak as the situation is, like our spirits are still good. Like we still do have things to talk about other than this. There, there have been moments where this stuff consumes us. And it's like the only thing we talk about, but then we'll catch ourselves and and try to find other things to talk about. And it doesn't have to consume us. And we can't not ever talk about it because we, don't, we both find it really important. But when we are able to find moments of common ground, it is like refreshing like I remember when you know I first found out that my mom did in fact believe in the coronavirus and like was okay like wearing a mask I was so happy <laughs> and I was like and we were just talking about COVID and like COVID safety and criticizing people that refused to wear masks uh, and it was just really cathartic because we were both sort of on the same side of it so there are still like aspects of common ground and like I, I talked about earlier right like I have lots of experience in finding common ground with people I might not otherwise share common ground with. And if I can't find common ground with my mom, then it's like I shouldn't be doing this job at all.
1: Well, that's kind of what it makes me think about, man. It's like makes me think about, uh, you know, fifth grade Albert using wrestling to connect with new kids at school. It's it's like in a way you've been (laughs) like practicing this thing for such a long time. And you're so lucky that you have it because I think for a lot of people – finding common ground in that situation, particularly around the election last year, would have been really, really hard. I think that's true. And and I think, like, in a
2: weird way, like, one reason I'm so, like, grateful for this job is, like, being able to experience the world through the lens of journalism, to me, makes it a lot easier to process, like, all the horrible shit that happens because like one, it gives you like gives me something to do. Like when the capital riots hit, I felt like I could do something. When the pandemic hit, I felt like I could. I I had tasks and phone calls and I I had things that I felt could contribute, where I could dive into the muck and like do my part in a way that fulfilled me personally, while still detaching myself in that sort of journalistic eye way, where I am a storyteller here as opposed to being a human experiencing everything. And I think it's been like that with my mom and my family too. Like one of the most fulfilling aspects of the book project and and all the essays I've done throughout these past few years has been like it's allowed me to view these personal challenges and things that upset me from a journalistic point of view, right? The same way when a, a terrible police shooting happens, the only thing I know how to do is like report on it and feel better that at least I'm reporting on it. You know, when my family hits some like financial roadblocks, it does help me being like, okay, well, let me just look at this through the eyes of a reporter. How does this change the narrative? How does this fit into the story? Like that when my mom would on too, where it's like when I would get those texts and, and we would have those arguments, there were moments when I would My instinct as a human, as a son, was to explode on her and to get really mad and to be like, no, this is absolutely wrong. I can't believe you believe that. But then I would catch myself and just be like, what would me, the journalist, do in this situation? And the journalist seeks to understand and empathize. And so I would try to detach myself from that position of being a really upset son And think like, okay, well, if I am going to write about this, let me understand my mom more. And so I would ask questions I don't think I would have asked if I wasn't a journalist, if I was just her son. And I think I didn't argue with her so much in recent years because like, you know what, if I want to write about this, I need to understand it. And it turned out that that sort of selfish act of like, well, let me see how I could write about this actually ended up being really good for our relationship. Hmm because it forced me to slow down and empathize in a way that I know how to do as a journalist, but I'm not as familiar doing as like a son or like a person or whatever. And so yeah, it became like, okay, well, this isn't just that my mom is like caught up in these ideas I disagree with. Now it's like my mom is caught up in these ideas I disagree with in like a way that's compelling and interesting in a way that can teach me more about the world and other people like her. And I don't know, like, to what degree this is, like, healthy or replicable, but, like, the framework of, like, that journalist-source relationship ended up being, like, a really soothing bomb for what could have taken a much more argumentative turn and allowed us to stay kind of in this realm of, like, understanding and curiosity and
1: empathy. Right. It's like you were, uh, you genuinely wanted to understand her side of the story.
2: Exactly. Exactly.
1: Albert, thank you so much for doing this, man. I really appreciate it.
2: It was a good time, man. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Piper, and our intern is Susan Peterson. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp and CaseFleet. And thanks so much to Albert for coming on the show. His book is coming out this fall. You're going to want to read it. We'll see you next week.
0: Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it.